Thanks for listening to the Grace Hill Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. For more information about Grace Hill, follow us on social media at gracehill901 or visit gracehill901.com. And today's message is going to be a lot more about hope and a lot more about opportunity that we have than anything else. And so I just kind of want to just take the pressure off. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this is not getting ready to turn into like the fourth night at youth camp. And if you don't know what the fourth night at youth camp is all about, I'm going to explain it. Yeah, some of you, this is, this, is my, this is my Christian camp section right here. The fourth night of youth camp goes like this. The first night is all about God and it's great and he's happy and he's awesome. And we present the gospel on the first night of youth camp. This is just typically Tuesday night. Wednesday night, it's all about Jesus and the pain that he bore on the cross and that, that oh yes, Jesus, you know, he, he took our sins away and all this and it's Jesus and it's wonderful. And then Thursday night is typically where we kind of put those two together, but it's, well, the good news is, is that Jesus rose from the dead. The fourth night, you gotta come in like your fireman suit, man, because they are getting ready to turn or burn and you know it. You get this chance, the guy's gonna give 50 altar calls, he's waiting on that one more person to come down front, okay? We're not doing that this morning, okay? That's not where we're headed, sorry to disappoint you. But there are a few arguments that culture brings to the Christian faith that says, well, what about this? Well, what about this question about hell? And again, so much of this is just bad. It's based in bad theology. As most of the series that we've looked at, the questions that culture raises are just based out of just bad misinformation. And the first one is this, is that hell is unjust. That hell is unjust. That somehow or another, the punishment for the crime of living your life the way that you want to live it, to what pleases you, to the end that you want to live it in, that somehow or another, living your life this way for 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 or 100 years and never following Jesus, but being condemned to an eternal hell, that somehow or another, this, this, this crime and punishment, somehow or another, the, the balance of scales doesn't line up. And for many of us living in a very quiet suburban community like Cogerville or Germantown or maybe some of these surrounding communities, uh, it's a very Western way of thinking about crime and punishment, is it not? It's a very sort of uh, uh, westernized, suburbanized way. And, And when we think about it this way, it makes sense. But what's interesting is it doesn't make sense for the rest of the world. Many people outside the Western world see evil and wonder how God could not punish evil. Wonder wonder why God would not step in and eliminate it or wipe it out. Wonder why the punishment wouldn't even potentially be more severe here on earth. Many people outside of the Western world would actually question the existence of God if it were not for justice and punishment. They would actually say they believe in hell because God is a God of justice. Therefore, they believe in God. They believe in God because of hell, not in spite of it. Christian theologian, he witnessed much of the death and the destruction of his country in Croatia. He wrote this, he said this, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis of God's refusal to judge in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watched it die, one would do well to reflect about many of the other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. 
What's so interesting about the Western culture that we live in is that we cry out for justice and we cry against injustice. I have gotten into, again, it's a guilty pleasure. I don't have a lot of guilty pleasures. I don't watch a lot of TV. Matter of fact, you know, I don't, like, I don't binge on Netflix. I, about the most TV I consume is Saturday college football in the fall. Amen. Can I get an amen? <clears throat> yeah, right on. Go Georgia. Um, and, and then, and, and then I, I consume a lot of Winter Olympics. Amen. Anybody recognize that one? Little uh, bobsledding action. I love it. It's my favorite thing. I think it's the mo- one of the most unathletic uh, sports uh, the, outside of curling. I think it's the most unathletic sport maybe in. So it gives me hope that I might one day be an Olympic athlete because of the bobsledders and the curlers. Side note, it's not in my notes, I promise. But, um, but, but, but much of, I don't even remember what my point was now. Where did I go wrong? Oh, here we go. But I do have one guilty pleasure. The one guilty pleasure that I really, really have, that I really have just sort of become consumed with, is I love the true crime, long-form journalistic podcast. Anybody in here recognize what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, like hands doing this. Like going up in the room, like, I love it. And, and here's what's interesting. If you're into like movies or these podcasts or anything, you know, you, you've got this plot. And the way that the people kind of tease the plot out is you get about four episodes in and you're like, this is the guy. He did it. He was there. The evidence proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then five episodes later, you're like, I have no idea. I have no idea. There's so many characters now. I don't know who did it. And the ones that hurt the most, and you can all identify with this, the ones that hurt the most are the ones where somebody got wrongfully imprisoned and 20 years later, DNA evidence proves that they were never the killer. They were never the ones that committed to crime. And it's all fun and it's cute when you're sitting in your car and you're driving home and you're listening to this podcast stretched out over a couple of weeks, but but for many people in our culture, we hear that and we see that and we experience that and we, 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 we rail against it, we cry out for injustice. But when it comes to a relationship with God, and how this affects many of our family, many of our friends, many of our neighbors. The idea of punishment for eternity is, is it just, it, it, it's incomprehensible. We, we, we can't understand it. And yet when we look around in our society, we, we see things that happen in our country whether it be with injustice towards a, a particular minority in the community whether it be what happened just a couple of weeks ago with the shooting that happened in Florida at Parkland and all of the opinions and all of the, the, the chaos that comes from that and we see the stories that emerge of, of how someone didn't act on information and we just become enraged of how could someone not do this? How could someone let this go? We become, we become so upset. We cry out for justice. And we rally around injustice and call out for those who exercise the injustice to come to justice. And yet in our own lives, when it comes to a holy God who is perfect and pure, and we think about injustice and the injustice that our lives represent to a holy and a pure God before we come into relationship with Jesus. It is so hard to think about us as individuals, family members, neighbors, friends, 
who would spend an eternity separated apart from God in hell. You see, hell is very much about injustice. And as those of us who live in this Western world, we may look at it and we may, it just may be a foreign concept. Our belief in God is shaken by the punishment of, of, of sin. In other countries, it proves the existence of God. It proves that there must be a God who would let sin go punished. It proves that there must be a God that he would, he would, he would rally against the oppressor. Mark Clark actually writes this in his book, and I do apologize, this is a little graphic, so if you've got children in the room, just kind of heads up on that. When Mark Clark writes, writes this, he said, ask the men and women living in a village in Africa where, where recently one tribe abducted hundreds of young women from another tribe, some as young as 10 years old, and forced them to be sex slaves and suicide bombers. Do you think the parents of these little girls have a problem with the idea of a place where evil men get punished for their crimes by a just judge? Do you think they object to a time when God will pronounce final and deserved judgment on these men? I can assure you they aren't losing any sleep over it. In fact, any concept of God without this final expression to them is less just, and he may not be worth worshiping at all. See, the problem of hell for our westernized world in so many ways is really a problem of personal responsibility. That we feel that we can live our lives in whatever way that we want to. We can live our lives however we want to, and I'm gonna come back to this in a little bit. For 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 years, we have said no to God. We have said no to his ways. We have said no to his will. We have said no to his lordship. We have said no to Jesus Christ as the ultimate sacrifice for the sin penalty of all sins and for all mankind. We've stood and we've said no. And yet somehow or another, when we think about eternity and we think about our future and we think about forever, Somehow or another, in that moment, it's perfectly okay for us to look at it and say, but God needs to say yes then. And that leads us to the second point. Is that isn't hell just a torture chamber? I mean, this is, this is a common theme. This is a common idea. And I'll be honest, after the, the first service, I was in the lobby, and uh, it, it was amazing the conversations that I had with people who, who really have grown up believing this. And thinking about this, thinking of it in this way. Now, again, this is, this is such a hot topic, and I, I told the first services, I told the crew then, I said, we are barely going to scratch the surface of this today. So if you're expecting me to go deep, I got 10 minutes and 35 seconds left in this message. So we're just going to skim the surface, go buy the book, and take a deep dive. But this idea that, that hell is, is somehow or another this eternal torture chamber, for all of those that, that rejected and rebelled God, again, this, this, this metaphor, this idea is just, it's so damaging. Charles Templeton, he's a Christian evangelist who turned atheist, made this statement. He said, I couldn't hold someone's hand to a fire for a moment. How could a loving God, just because you don't obey him and do what he wants, torture you forever, not allowing you to die, but to continue in that pain for eternity? There is no criminal who would do this. 
So let's challenge this idea, this thought that, that hell is just this eternal torture chamber. And again, we're gonna, it's kind of a two-step here that we're going to look at. Um, I, I want to I illustrate it this way. So much of Scripture as it points to hell is a different literary style of writing than maybe what we were taught. It's a different literary style of writing than even what we, we read on a normal basis. I'll illustrate it this way. If I'm gonna go to my app, my news app or apps, whether it be a sports app or a news app, whatever, and I'm going to read about the bobsled team and find out how the two-man or the four-man bobsled team did, can you imagine my horror if I opened that app up and it was read in the style of J.R. Tolkien writing The Lord of the Rings? And can you imagine how boring that humongous collection of books would be if it were not written with this metaphoric sort of apocalyptic style writing, literary right? and if it was written more as just a news report, investigative journalism. You see, when we read the Bible, there are so many different forms of literary style that are contained in the Bible. And so we have to be careful when we read scripture, especially scripture that talks about anything to do with hell. We have to be careful that we, we read it accurately and we read it correctly. I'll illustrate my point in one other way and then we're gonna move on. I really wanna get to the, to the end of the message. I'm gonna skip a bunch of content, but, but I'll illustrate it one other way in this way. In Revelation, the author of Revelation, John, he describes Jesus as a lamb. That's what he says. Jesus Christ, the lamb takes away the sins of the world. We get this picture all through scripture. Now, how many of you actually believe in whatever way, form, shape the rapture happens and we all end up in eternity in heaven, how many of you actually believe we're gonna get there and we're gonna hear somebody going, bah, bah, and we're gonna walk around the corner and there's Jesus Christ as a lamb, woolly, a little over, you know, overgrown, needs to be shaved, four hooves, the whole deal, no. Why? Because it's a metaphoric description of Jesus Christ. And first century Jewish culture would have interpreted that as this. All through my whole entire life, I've had to go and sacrifice a lamb for my sins. All through my whole entire life, I've had to go and I've had to offer up a sacrifice, a perfect, spotless lamb. And this guy is saying that Jesus Christ was that once and for all. See, we have to be careful when we read this. We have to be careful when we, when we look at Scripture and make sure that we're reading it and interpreting it right in the correct literary style. You see, there's prescriptive and then there's descriptive, okay? I, you can go read some Old Testament stuff and come back and talk to me later and see if that's really the path you want to head, okay? So, so there's prescriptive and there's descriptive. And then there's these, these passages of Scripture, that we get into are, that are very, very metaphoric. Matter of fact, the apocalyptic uh, language was used by a lot of the prophets. N.T. Wright, a scholar and author, he writes this, he says this, all dis uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, he says this, apocalyptic language uses complex and highly colored metaphors in order to describe one event in terms of another. Indeed, it is not easy to see what better language system could have been chosen the metaphorical language of apocalyptic invests history with theological meaning. 
See, the Bible often uses imagery. It often uses metaphor when speaking about spiritual realities. Romans 12.1 says this, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Sign me up, you know? So we have to be careful when we read and how we interpret Scripture. Tim Keller sums it up this way, and then I'm moving on. He says this, all descriptions and depictions of heaven and hell in the Bible are symbolic and metaphorical. Each metaphor suggests one aspect of the experience of hell. For example, fire tells us of the disintegration, while darkness tells us of the isolation. Having said that, and this is important, do not miss this, having said that does not at all imply that heaven or hell themselves are metaphors. No, they are very real. They're very much realities. But all language about them is elusive, metaphorical, and partial. And here's really where I wanted to get to today is this, is that Jesus helps us understand hell. You see, the Old Testament does, in fact, speak a lot of God's wrath and his justice and his, his you know, he, he becomes indignant at how rebellious and stiff-necked, you hear that, his people are. But this idea of hell, and let that baby cry, it ain't bothering me one bit. It's a sweet sound, largely because it'll never have to be in my house um, anymore, um, at least for a few years till grandkids start coming back. But then I get to send them home, so it's even better. So let that baby cry, it ain't bothering me at all. Um, but, but we get to Jesus, We get to Jesus, and we begin to see the language shift. And Jesus actually begins to speak often of hell. Matter of fact, if you trace all of Jesus' teachings and look at them, about 13% of Jesus' time teaching and speaking that we have recorded in scriptures, about 13% of that was spent talking about hell and the judgment of God. And Jesus begins to help us understand what life apart from God for eternity will really look like. You see, Jesus gets a clear, gives us a clearer, refined doctrine of hell that comes from the Bible than any other picture that we have up to this point. One of the clearest pictures that we get from Jesus is in Luke chapter 16. If you have a Bible, you can go with me there for just a few minutes in Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives us this story of a, of a rich man and a, and a poor man who was very, very sick. And it says this in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered in sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And there's so much first century Jewish culture and history just packed into that, that verse, those verses. This rich man clothed in these fine linens and this poor man outcast. He had sores, more than you know, leprosy that the dogs, the lowest of the low came and licked, found their, their nourishment, found their food, found peace in licking this poor man's wounds. And we get this picture of suffering that Jesus hands us right here. In these first couple of verses, a picture of suffering, a picture of imbalance in the social scales, a picture that, that here on earth there will be injustice, that for some reason this man was rich 
And he was, he was probably rude and he was probably mean and he was self-sufficient and he didn't need anybody or anything. And then we get this picture of this man who maybe for no other reason just happened to be born in the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong family. And he ended up a beggar outside the poor man's door. But watch this. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Again, another picture there of of the angels taking this poor man to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. Again, not a lot of hope that we get from that passage. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Can you imagine that moment? Here's a man who's self-sufficient. He's got everything he needs right at his fingertips, right at his disposal. And he dies, and much to his surprise, he looks up and he sees this poor beggar in heaven. And watch what he says. He said, he says, so he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And watch what he asked for. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. See, the man in hell calls out to Abraham and he asks him, he says, send Lazarus to just, just give me just a little bit of water because I'm in so much agony. Send Lazarus to just give me this poor beggar who never did anything for me except sit outside my door. And probably be a nuisance. Send him to dip his finger in water. Because I'm in agony. And here's the picture that we get from, 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 from this story that Jesus tells us. You see, there's this idea of common grace in Scripture. It's the things that we could easily take for granted. The fact that we can breathe, the fact that the sun came out today, the fact that we have rain, the, the, the fact that we have, we have a, a new day, we have friends, all of the, this common grace. It's the common grace that Jesus, that God extends to us. And we get this picture of hell being rid of the common grace of God. That even something as simple as a drop of water to cool someone's thirst is absent in hell. The story goes on and it says this. But Abraham replied to him, son, and and I want you to remember that. You can highlight it, circle it, whatever you gotta do in your Bible app, whatever needs to be done, I want you to remember that word. Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Again, there's this, this desire. This, they're in, they are separated from God, but we can't go there. Nor anyone can cross over from there to us. So not only do we get this picture of a void of common grace, we get a picture of a void of radical grace, redemptive grace that does not exist in hell. 
And you might be tempted to think for just a minute. You, you might be here to this morning. You might say, oh, man, I am so glad that, you know, maybe it's not like a lake of fire and flames and you're burning up and it's just this forever torment. Just, here's what I want to say to you this morning. It may not. And one of the great tragedies of our society is this, is that we think we can actually figure God out. And it can never and it will never happen. The mysteries of God are too deep. And his holiness is far too wide. And his power is far too great. And the moment we think we have figured out, we've begun to identify who God is and we've begun to really understand who God is, we have just barely scratched the surface. It would be like stepping out onto a huge beach and actually being able to reach down and pick up a handful of sand and separate it into one grain of sand compared to who God is by the vast number of sands on the beach. So what I want to say to you today is this, is that there really may not be literal fire and literal lakes of fire and torment and screaming and as Jesus said and his weeping and gnashing of teeth and all this like scary bedtime stuff that you would never want to read to your kids, there literally may not be any of that in hell. There may not be. But you know what is there and what's guaranteed there? Is a separation for all of eternity from God. And I'll be honest with you. And this has come from, from someone who got second degree burns on his body last year on 15% of his body hidden underneath these sleeves. I'll take the fire over separation from God in eternity any day of the week. Here's the other thing that I know about hell, and I'm done, the worship team can come on up, is that while hell is a tragedy for men, the separation for eternity, it's such a tragedy, it is also a tragedy for God. The word that is used here when Abraham calls back to this rich man, he says, son, in your translation, it may say child. The Greek origin, the Greek basis for that word is a word that a parent would use to show affection to their children when they call them by name, which again, in my household, there usually ain't a whole lot of affection surrounding when I'm calling my children by name. Can I get an amen on that one? But in this case, this was not sinner. This was not wretched rebellion. This was the word son. It was the idea of compassion. It was the idea of affection. So while, while hell is tragic, it's horrible, and I want everyone to be spared from it, it is also a tragedy for God, and here's why. Because God made a way back. God created an opportunity to avoid hell for humanity. The Bible actually tells us in Matthew chapter 25 that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's this idea that, man, God didn't even want people to go to hell. And sure, he could have just, you know, moved everybody over, changed of address, changed of location. Hey, guys, we're just going to, you know, cut this out. But God is so holy and he's so pure. He's so righteous that he cannot stomach sin. So he made a way back. 
He provided a way. He, he provided an opportunity for every one of us, for all of humanity to join him for eternity with him together. And God paid an incredible sacrifice for that sacrifice. He created, he, created, he paid an incredible debt. He carried a, a terrible burden. How arrogant is it for us to look at God who said, I'm sending my son to die for all of humanity. I'm sending my son to, to join humanity back to God and to make a way to spare us from eternal separation from God. I'm going to do this because I love humanity so much. And just like that song, I want to be with humanity so much. How arrogant is it for us to say, no thanks. I'm good. I'm quite all right. See, here's what I believe about hell. And here's what I believe scripture teaches about hell. Is that if we live our entire life rebelling against God and saying no to the grace of God, why would God not just allow us to continue to do that for eternity? Why would God just at some point just not say, okay, well, this is the path that you've chosen. Whether it's 20 years or 30 years or 50 years or 80 years or 100 years, you've said no to me for all of your life. So now you're gonna just continue in the path that you've already chosen to say no to me for eternity. And that is the tragedy of hell. Not that it's fire and it's scary and it's you know, all these uh, scary bedtime story things. It's not that. It's that it is a life separated from God. So this morning, I, I just simply just want to say to each one of you is this. Is that opportunity is there for every single person. And if you're on a path now that is saying no to God, you can continue on that path as long as you want. But my prayer for you today is that you would say, you know what, I'm going to step out of rebellion and I'm going to step into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.